0: Hi there and welcome to episode 15 of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast. Once again, this is your host, Greg Lindberg. On this episode of the podcast, we set sail across the pond to visit with a highly decorated blind sailing champion, gold medalist, and she's also involved in a very beneficial organization to get blind and visually impaired folks in the UK more engaged in sailing. So let's set sail here on episode 15. Okay, so welcome to episode 15 here of the podcast. And on this episode, we're talking about blind sailing. And to help us do that, we have a very uh, awesome guest here. Her name is Lucy Hodges, and she is a member of the Order of the British Empire and a multiple time gold medalist in sailing. Lucy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. Sounds like I'm a stranger when people read that out every time.
0: <laughs> hey, you definitely deserve it. That's that's quite a resume right there. So, it's it's an honor to have you on. Thank you. All righty. So uh, we definitely want to get into you know blind sailing and your experience. And I know you are involved in a nonprofit and a charity on that front. Uh, but first off, let's just start to kind of chronologically as far as your life goes. Talk to me about where you were born and where you grew up.
1: Yeah, so I was born... I'm an Essex girl, so I think most people around the world understand um, Essex. Uh, so born in Essex, a little place called Rochford, um, and still live there today. Not many people move away or move very far. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's, that's quite interesting. Still see the same old people I went to primary school and school with. So um, had... Um, an interesting start to life Uh, I think every parent sees their child as the perfect child no one ever wants to think of uh, being born with a disability or an illness or struggles Um, and um, it wasn't recognized that I had a visual impairment at all when I was first born so I went home with mum and dad um, as their beautiful first baby girl Um, and uh, uh, it wasn't until six months later um, that my granddad who, who lives in Cornwall came down to visit and he said, Oh, you know, something, something strange going on there. And, uh, and dad were like, what do you mean? And, uh, my granddad sort of picked up that my eyes wobbled and it wasn't the social media or, you know, the internet, the, to be, to be honest, I'm not that old. Well, I'm getting there, but there, there wasn't computers just to log on and Google wobbly eyes. Um, you know, like there is today, uh, or all the different forums to to join and ask questions. So uh, they had to wait till they could go to Great Ormond Street in London uh, get a full diagnosis. I think it's funny Mum always says she never knew what they did. Um, they took me away for tests. Um, and, but she believes that um, and I, I find it quite weird actually she believes that they took my eyes out and I have a, had a good old look and she says oh I think they just dusted them out to see if they could get them working properly she's always been quite funny about it my mum and dad are <laughs> my biggest supporters and encouragers in, in life um, and yeah I was brought, diagnosed um, with photophobia and nystagmus and again I come back to what I just said there wasn't, there wasn't the information so um, I can remember still to this day the same hospital that I go to but I can remember going to it and, and seeing a fantastic doctor uh, who I, I saw all of my life uh, until I was into my late 20s um, and I sort of grew up with my, my doctors and then a visual aids doctors and uh, used to check us over but never it always used to just encourage mum and dad to, to treat us at no, as normal so uh, my life has been pretty much normal um, and until I sort of started moving into
0: a disabled sort of sporting career. And as far as your visual impairment, has it been, you know, as far as your vision, has it been the same pretty much throughout your life or has it changed any? Oh,
1: that's a fascinating question at at this moment in in my life. Um, So obviously we're in the UK, we're in a second phase of lockdown or whatever the phase is. So we can go out a little bit more and see six people at social distance of two metres. But working from home, so all of my life, um, my photophobia, so I'm light sensitive because I'm an albino and I ny- nystagmus, uh, that's always been an issue. Even going through mainstream school, um, that feeling of being different, you've got wobbly eyes, you're pale skinned you're blonde, and you need to put um, tinted glasses on. So you always feel that slight difference. And, and I went to mainstream primary school, mainstream senior school and had the most awesome time there and and really good teachers really good friends that supported me but I would always get headaches I would always have bouts of losing my sight and it's one of the fascinating things the doctors used to say to me you need to take a step back and I've got a fantastic job with government and they're always saying to me you need to go part-time you need to take a step and I always say to them well who's going to pay for my mortgage who's going to pay my bills you know I still need to do this in life and I still want to be going out that door and and achieving things. And given lockdown and the fact that we've got to work at home, It's just meant that I've been able to control my own uh, environment without being in the office, which my team are fantastic. Let me put the blinds down. But it's an open-planned office, so there's still a load of light coming in. Um, And I can control my rest, so when my nystagmus starts to play up, I I can recognise it quicker, have a little rest. And uh, for the last three months, I've not had a headache. So actually, I've recognised it, sort of like mid-40s that I am now, the amount of pressure I've always put my out under by, by going to work which I want to do and I need to do but actually the difference it makes to me as a person just being able to control it but I'm so grateful that having it from birth having parents that, uh, I mean, my mum and dad didn't know how, well, how much I could see. I didn't know what the difference was. You know when you pick up in life the little things? Um, it's the age-old story I always tell that when I went to primary school, my mum and dad lived up um, a private road. Uh, doesn't sound, That sounds posh, but it wasn't posh. Uh, but there was just five houses on, on each side, and we all used to go to school together, all the kids from all the houses. We used to walk to the bottom of this road, and it was just five minutes walk along the same road and we was at school so we all went together primary school so everyone used to turn around away, wave obviously to the mums and dads waving them off to school so I used to turn around and wave but didn't have a clue if my mum was still at the gate or gone in you know but that was that was the thing everyone else did so I always followed the pattern of everybody else and it wasn't until I was uh, well into my 20s and, and something happened and mum said could you ever see me when you got to the bottom of the road and you were turned around away? She said, I've always wondered. She said, my perception is you couldn't, but you always did it. And I said, Mum, I was just following everybody else, but I couldn't. She said, oh, it always made me happy. So mm. it was an it's an interesting thing that I never knew. Um, and the encouragement and support of um, the people around me at school, uh, my teachers, Mark Sucklin and Paulie McGarry um, at senior school, they was always very much there saying, you can do. Um, give it a go. Let's see. Let's see if you if you fail, what can we do differently to make you succeed? And I absolutely took to sport. Um, if I could put a pen down, um, because we we didn't have the iPads kids got nowadays. The visually impaired kids, I still had to write, uh, and I had to try and read it back. So I did have my um, support worker Pauline at a mainstream school. But sport, they, I mean, my school were fantastic. They bought balls with marbles in, so I could still play with the other kids. Um, I was a swimmer, so they, I was always picked for all the events, uh, and there's so much encouragement that I think that's why sport became a very much a driver in my life and a, an outlet to maybe some other frustrations that you, you do get when you're visually impaired, but um, it's, it's stable, but it's a lot better since lockdown. <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, it is amazing what we're learning about ourselves during this whole lockdown and You know, just being in kind of the same environment every day, I can definitely relate working from home versus being in an office. And like you said, being able to control the environment is, you know, and it's it's very advantageous to many of us. So that's, that is an interesting, you know, perspective.
1: I've definitely, definitely gained so much out of this. There's people I do know that's out there that that haven't, you know, haven't gained and socially isolated and and stuff like that. So I I really recognise that. And we'll probably talk about that later with the charity. But for me personally, just that little benefit of understanding myself. And I've not understood myself or my eyesight or the, the benefits it can have of having that period in darker space to do activities and tasks and and how much i i gain from it so um yeah something i want to take forward with work once this is over for definite
0: for sure yeah so then as far as sports i know you did mention swimming was that kind of the first sport that you really took to you know as a child
1: yeah, um I took so I swam for um South End on Sea when I was younger and uh, it was from a real early age uh, I was with that club so I went all the way through to an adult really um and was in encouraged um to to be active in in the club um i never went first in a lane because i was useless at seeing the clock and reading the clock um but was always was always there and no one ever when i got it wrong or slightly caught someone no one ever sort of moaned or anything so much understanding um you know it was amazing at galas i always knew i was that tiny bit slower I didn't have the same reactions my turns were slower um, growing up as a child and then I found Phoenix in Colchester a disabled swim club when I was a lot older I found it that a little bit too late in life which is a shame I wish I'd have found it when I was I was um, younger uh, but I found it you know when I was I was at sort of like uh, approaching my sort of like 18 20s, so it was a little bit too late but I started doing disabled disabled gal- galas with them um, and Absolutely loved it, you know, and, and learned about just being tapped on the head. It, you know, oh, it improved my swimming and my times over 100 metres and 50 metres if it was in a 25 pool by, you know, quite a few seconds. And racing against um, people with visual impairments was so life-changing i still loved my able-bodied swimming but it just meant i knew where i was on the platform with with other people like me not just in terms of physical fitness but actually just you know that reaction time being a very similar pattern to each other because you raced in i was i'm a b2 and you sort of raced you raced against each other so it it was quite equal um, so I wish I'd found that in life. But I got two British records in, uh 50 and 100 metre breaststroke. And uh, I was quite happy with that. I was quite happy with that. But I think one of the things I always encourage when I meet people uh, with, with visually impaired children, you know, if they are into sport. You know, it's really fantastic to be into mainstream school, but the avenues of disabled sport um, use them as well. Do both at the same time, because if you are wanting to achieve um, Paralympic standard, world standard, that's your avenue. There's very few people that are able to achieve able-bodied standard, you know, when when the sort of like visual impairment is quite, quite impaired. But I loved swimming. It was my, oh, I used to swim seven, eight times a week hours mm. on end and I did that till I was well in my 30s um I used that as my form of exercise you know just playing up and down and feeling the water um just just the power of your own body to to, to swim and the faster you could go um yeah it was it was time out and you don't need to see to swim you can count your strokes and yeah occasionally when you forget you, you hit the wall when you feel it but right. you soon learn to start counting again and not doing that little daydream i'm quite a daydreamer sometimes so uh, yeah so swimming uh, uh, to be honest water was everything in my life uh we're by the sea in essex in south end on sea uh, just next to the town of Rochford where we live so uh, water was was everything
0: and yeah like you said swimming is it's such an accessible sport and I, I always feel like it is the probably the best form of exercise i mean they say you're using like every muscle when you swim so it's it's so beneficial.
1: Yeah, and it's low low impact. It's it's low impact, um, and you can you know go as fast or as slow or as gentle as you want. And um, it's a it's a real feeling of feeling at peace. I think uh, with swimming, I, I do feel at peace when I'm swimming.
0: Definitely, yeah, same here. So then, as far as sailing, uh, from what I've read, I guess it was your dad that actually kind of got you into sailing
1: yeah so um like so i say being by the water uh we used to have uh, a canoe my god if you looked at my dad's garage it's like one of those um there's there's the um the the american program where they open up a locker and you have to bid on it but you don't know quite what's in it oh yeah (laughs) You'd <laughs> be betting on my dad's garage. It's got, it's got everything in there. So he used to have canoes in there. We still does. It's all still in there. Canoes, little fold-up dinghies. So we used to explore the water a lot. He's um, got a speedboat in there. Um, and... Um, uh, the The family next door, John and Val, Val Val died uh, a few years ago, but they loved the water too. And uh, John loves boats, and his son Simon's so into sailing. Uh, he teaches a lot of sailing down in Wales. And uh, they bought a boat, and they wanted to move to a bigger boat. So uh, me and Dad went halves and bought John's little cruisy boat. And it was the first time when we'd sort of been left together, alone to learn to sail. We'd been out with my uncle on just a, a motor cruiser, and Dad knew how to sell uh, from my uncle uh, and was and my next door neighbour, but it was teaching me. And it was the first time where I think when I was growing up, he was the man that made everything for the street. He, he made me a ruler for school that had markings in it because there wasn't that sort of stuff uh, available uh, to us. So he didn't know where to go. There wasn't a website to go to to buy a ruler for a visually impaired person like there is today. You couldn't just log on to the RNIB and find out how can I help with that. And um, so he made me a ruler. And it was the first time where he sort of like was like, oh, she can't see that. You know, and and it's one of those things when sailing instructors say, "Oh, just point the boat there and, and get to there," but you can't do that with a vision impaired person because they don't have that, they don't have that sight to, to look over there and miss land and stuff like that. But it was so fortunate. It was in his lorry. He's a, a, a lorry driver, and he loved listening to Radio Four, and uh, he listened to In Touch, which is a, a very big uh, vision impaired radio show in the UK. Um, I don't think, it might go further than you can. I'm not that good on radio where, where the signals go, being blonde, I always get a bit confused. Um, right. But they advertised a weekend uh, for uh, Disabled with, with um, an organisation called Royal Yachting Association, Sailability, and uh, he rang them up and, and asked if we, we could come. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, she's, she's quite young. I was 17, I, d- I didn't think it was young, you know, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I thought I was getting slightly older, but it was, it was young to them. Uh, and uh, went along, me and Dad, uh, we had our first day in dinghies, uh, just a, a little, a, um, a little Pico, me and Dad. And then we went into a bigger yacht the next day and met a man called Julian Manderwall, who sadly also died <laughs> um, about a year, two years ago. And he was hmm. the biggest influencer, along with my dad, in life. And uh, he was of the attitude of, uh, you can do it, just go and try I'll, I'll teach what needs to be done and you've got to find a way uh, with your vision to be able to do it. Hanking on the cell at the front, getting the clips the right way round, you know, and I, I'd learned from a very young age my memory was powerful as a visually impaired person and my hearing was powerful. You haven't necessarily got... Better hearing, but you need to use it. And I, I soon learned on a yacht. If I memorised everything, it was better than being on a street where the bins come out on a Thursday, people walking along. On a yacht, the sails move, the booms move, but you're moving it with the wind and the breeze, and you're in so much more control of of, of what's going on. And I just, from that moment on, I just knew that I was going to love the sport. And uh, they asked me, so I knew they asked me to go to uh, the Blind Nationals, and I think my dad's words were, but she don't know one end of the boat from the other yet, you can't ask her to go to a Nationals, and they were like, we can, we can and we have, and we want you to bring her to Lymington." so that's sort of where it all started when I was
0: sort of 17. Wow, that's a great story. As far as the uh, the visual classifications, I understand that there are certain you know classifications in, in terms of sailing, and I know many other blind sports. Could you kind of talk about that?
1: Visual impairment is sort of uh, measured in what's called a B one, a B two, and a B three, and there are B four and B five categories as well. Um, so B one is someone who's I, I always so this isn't the, the actual medical terminology this is my um use it easy guide to it so b1 (laughs) is someone that's totally blind uh it might have a tiny bit of light perception but Man, even that tiny bit of light perception—that those guys can use that—it's um, it's amazing to watch, or the clicking or the touching to find gaps and echoes. So yeah. that's sort of a B1 person. B2, myself—I've always been in the B2 position. So it's—I always say it's the simplest things. Um, uh, can I can count fingers roughly um close to my face but everything else is blurred so i can see blobs of shapes and colors but it's no it's got no definition to it um so i'm quite happy-go-lucky because uh, I've had it from birth. I think if I realised what I'm missing, I think that might be um, a bigger problem. But, um, you know, and someone like me, I only see in 2D, I don't see 3D. Um, but it's it's what's called useful, slightly useful vision, and you can, you can get about use of a cane and stuff like that, or a dog. Um, and then B3, this is someone, I always say it's like tunnel vision, where the, the centre of your vision is still really useful, but everything else is starting to get smaller and smaller, or those with peripheral vision. So you've still got some really good, useful vision. My friend Liam, he's he's amazing. I sat with him. I've won three golds with him. Uh, we are a team and it was like we combined our B2 and B3 together Um, and he used to have like a a tiny prick in one eye just like looking through a tiny tiny cocktail straw just in one eye but he, he scans and creates a picture and it's just amazing how you how little sight you can have but if you use it and get used to it and um you can it's so powerful and people always say he can see more but i always say to them he's seeing through like a tiny cocktail straw you know he's he's seeing through a dot and he describes his that if he holds his head still he and you were like say 3 meters away he'd see the pinpoint of your nose and he'd have to scan to build the bigger picture um, hmm. But he's, he's now down into the B2 category. But he started off with a, a larger uh, tunnel vision. So uh, that's, that's sort of how it works. And then B4, um, you've, you've got a little bit more. So you're sort of, you, it's a sad position to be in, actually. Some of our sailors just got um, classified as B4. So they're, they're in what's called, I call, no man's land. They're not quite able to compete able-bodied and they're not quite, disabled enough or visually impaired enough to compete in sport and it's real balance so with my organization the b4s are totally included i just can't take them to world championships but they're totally included up to national level um because i know that my sister sits in a sort of like b4 category and um you know her struggles are just the same um they're they're no different whether it's a b3 or a b4 So, yeah, that's that's sort of how we how we work. And it's quite an easy way if you're starting up an organisation with visually impaired or you meet someone visually impaired. Just having that little um, the the little numbers does help because you can find out a bit about what they can see. But everybody is different. You know, everyone's totally different, and I, I strongly believe. And you probably heard this before, because I was born with a visual impairment. I'm so lucky. Losing your eyesight, like many of our uh, members, sort of in your 30s, in your 40s, and having it deteriorate. You know, um, you know, many of my friends are now deteriorating to totally blind, and. Uh, they had better sight than me and I just I just thank that you know I'm not heavily religious but I just say it's God's lucky little gift to me that that mine was from birth birth, and it is it is stable and I can make it more stable myself
0: yeah that's well said and I can definitely relate being visually impaired since birth as well it's I I Mm. just can't imagine you know having driven and having a license and yeah being able to do so many things and having that taken away from you it's, yeah, it's, just it's that be...
1: independence in life, isn't it? Uh, oh when yeah, I, I...
0: that's a great word. Yep, <laughs> no um, doubt.
1: At, you know, I've i I've sat around a table with a couple of my friends that are um, ex ex army that had been blown up in Afghanistan. And, and I was truly shocked for, we, we were at a sailing weekend, sailing together, and we were mm. doing, a, I can't remember what the chat was. It was a conversation about finding out more about people. And I think it ended up by the um, one of the guys has got no legs, uh, he had an arm blown off and part of his face. And he said, I'd much rather be me than you, Luce. And I was like, why? Why? And it, and it did just come down to that word independence. He said, I've still got a car. He said, I walked into this pub by myself uh, and found, found you lot. I can sit and read this menu. I can sit and read the specials board. I can still do every activity that I could do before I was blown up with the, you know, he's got different arms and different legs for the act. And I thought about it and it, and it something rang true that actually through all what he's been through and his outlook in life, he did still have not a lot more than me, but that word independence was still so true in his life whereas in my life it it takes a lot more organization and a, 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 as you all know getting from a to b takes a bit of organization and planning or relying on a taxi or a friend to get you there
0: exactly yeah very well said so then uh, back to sailing talk about you know as far as the adaptations and i know you've mentioned sound and you know potentially even some tactile elements and if just kind of take us through you know being on the boat with your Fellow sailors, and kind of what that whole experience is like.
1: Yeah, so I suppose to to put it all a bit in context. So what context of what I do now? Um, after that weekend at the nationals, it didn't go so well. Our boat broke, but it didn't stop me there. I, I went to my first World Championships out in Miami and won bronze. Was my first world title was a bronze, and um, at, at the time, sailing in the UK, it wasn't like my swimming. With Phoenix and Colchester, that was regular. Lots of competition. I was, I was like, find out more. Why isn't this readily available? Why can't we do this training more? You know, why is it just around one championships? And I started to question it more. And then I became um, sort of like commodore of, of blind sailing in, in the UK. Became more aware about the Royal Yachting Association, the qualifications, of what we could do. And I then developed a a program in the UK so people could train for 10 10 weekends uh, a year and more if we could and go and attend more competitions, created a national platform for the visually impaired in sailing. So I got that going and I thought, right, we need to do more here. How can I learn more about what sighted guys see? So in our fleet racing that we do, uh, we, and this, we have two sighted on board and two visually impaired. So you have a visually impaired helm and a visually impaired main cheater. And for those that are non sailors the helm's the person that steers it, like the car, and the main sheet is a, a big sheet of cloth at the top. The control makes you go fast, makes you go slow. And then we have a sighted tactician. He's allowed to touch nothing on board. He paints the picture. So he, he basically becomes the audio description on the telly.
0: <laughs> um,
1: paint Painting the race course and as a team you make you make the tactics decisions but he sort of has the overall uh, the overall say um, and then we have a sighted crew who's uh, he works the jib which is a smaller sail at the front of the boat but he also supports the the rest of the sail set for the main sheeter he's the visualise the checks to see if it's there because all our guys get it you know get it nearly spot on it just takes that visual look and it so i was like Or how can I learn this further? How can we adapt our coaching? Uh, We have some amazing coaches. So all we did was take a a PowerPoint presentation and make it tactile on a table using uh, beer mats to create uh, effectively the chessboard going up a race course from the start line to the top mark because our races are sort of like triangular. But actually, all the different effects of tide and wind and where the marks are laid and we have things called bias using the uh, beer mats to create the squares being able to move them uh, creating a big tactile picture and then we just kept developing it further and further and creating more and more information in a in a in a tactile way on shore. So when you got out on the water, that image that you touched became a visual image in your mind. So when you was approaching the start line and you was getting that information from the tactician, like we're going to be on a long starboard tack, you know, to get to the top of the mark, it's going to be long, or the wind shifted to the left. You had all that imagery in your mind of what that would be doing to the race course. So they were looking at it. And before, when I was hearing it, it wasn't meaning so much. I had the basics, but because I'd been able to touch and physically understand it on on shore had all that visual picture and then about uh i don't know I, god it must be eight ten years ago in italy uh they developed the humor system which is uh, acoustic sound coming from the three marks of the race course an acoustic sound on board the boat different sound for the tack you're on and um they started to form blind match racing. When it first started, you had a sighted umpire on board that didn't touch anything but was there for safety. And gradually, um, it, you know, it advanced. And now we don't have any sighted on board. So we sail in a team of three. Uh, I act as the sighted tactician uh, on the jib. Uh, Liam, my friend, he he trims the main sheet. And then Sharon, she's totally blind, she helms. So after now, um, up my game, my communication, I become the audio describer getting us around the boat, uh, around, the, around the course. Um, but what we did with our training, we had to then adapt our training again because the sighted guys weren't going to find the start line for us. How do you then coach getting between two noises on a start line how do you then cope with the wind shifts? So we've had to re- rethink some of our coaching and spend time in a field learning about sound and how it travels, and then how it relates to the water because it bounces off the water, and then the breeze can blow it. But it actually, um, you know, I think in when we did our, we won our third uh, gold medal in match racing uh, in 2018. Me and Liam, and it was quite a light light wind event. On the last day, we were racing in front of Princess Anne, a great honour. But light wind for a visually impaired person. We use the feel um, of the wind on our face, the feel of the boat. Um, You know, it's all about the feel. But in light wind, quite a lot of that goes. And for Sharon, she's lost all of her feel on the helm. So she was relying on me uh, feeling and keeping the boat going. And we, we just kept that boat trucking through the water. And we actually looked at each other at, at the end of the race, after waving at Princess Anne as we crossed the the finish line, um, we actually looked at each other and said, feel like sailors now, feel like real sailors, you know, being able to sail all week long in different conditions um, and achieve that gold, you know, it, it's an amazing adrenaline feeling. And it brings me back to... Um, we talk about independence sailing for me swimming didn't give it to me it gave me a sense of adrenaline a sense of freedom but sailing for me gives me freedom and it gives me that sense of independence being able to drive a boat around a race track. um you know it's like i always say they don't let you drive a car around the m25 but they let me take a boat out with my visually impaired friends and, and drive it around a racetrack and you can do just as much damage to the other boat but they don't they don't seem to mind and we we seem to be quite good at it but it's the adaptions are very small on the boat. There's no adaptions. The only thing we do is the same as sighted guys do. We tape up the, the sheets so that the ropes that control the sails. So we've got an average point that we, we want to get the rope to, but we're still tweaking it afterwards. And that's just what sighted guys do. You know, when you're in that moment and you're in that panic and you, you're wanting to win and the adrenaline's going, you can often pull things tighter than normal and, and not appreciate things, but having that visual uh, cue um, or that tactile cue um, it, it's the same for sighted and non sighted so actually in terms of adaptions for visually impaired people on the boat we don't have any other than probably our vibrating watch or large print watches but even those are just normal everyday racing watches that, that the sighted guys have so it's only one of those sports that you can definitely pick it up and go if you're visually impaired especially if you've got a sighted person that jumps on board with you
0: right very cool And I like to say, once again, it it sounds like, you know, sailing like a lot of other sports for the visually impaired, you know, there are very few adaptations that you really have to make to it, you know, for someone who's blind or visually impaired to be able to compete. And it's just, it's so neat that it's, you know, pretty simple to, to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had a fantastic story at the end of last year. It's a shame we we were hoping to do a bit more this year, but it's all on hold. Um, We uh, finished our uh, World Championships fleet racing with the sighted guys in Canada in September, Uh, and that's where I won my sixth sixth gold. And Hmm. uh, we'd also qualified for the Killboat League final in the UK, um, which was... um, in the UK, all the different sailing clubs host these events, and um, clubs from around the UK get if if they get into the top two, they get a position at the final. And we'd managed to do that and get a position at the final. It was the only disabled boat um, to to get a position, um, and it's sort of nearly all the top sailors, the the university students, the um, the Olympic squad, youth squad, all 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 are there. You know, it's a real buzzy mix of of people. And um, the Killbot leaks really fast, really furious, 12 minute races, eight boats on the start line, and you're constantly swapping. It. It's an amazing buzz. And uh, the boat's fantastic, had uh, spinnakers on them, which is a big, uh, big sail out the front, very powerful when you're going downwind. And uh, we hadn't done any practice together as a team with that. We, we did about 20 minutes before our first race. Um, we'd done tiny, tiny bits, nothing to to speak of at this sort of level of the game. But again, teamwork and coming off the back of winning at the Worlds really shone through. And it was an amazing feeling to be in that level regatta. But the thing was, there was... um, Nick Douglas, who's uh, she's a, a social media, she talks about sailing online and goes around presenting with her Adventures of a Sailor Girl. She's quite a big fan of blind sailing in the UK and she came and supported us for the weekend but then said, oh, I'll do a bit of PR for you. She was, she was in the rib and we, we came fourth in one of the races and we cheered as Master Cheer go up. And as we were swapping boats, one of the guys said uh, to, to Ben, my sighted tactician, he said this is a great thing you're doing for charity, raising awareness of blind sailing. Like, can we, how do we sponsor you? And he was like, no, we are blind sailing. You've just raced against a blind helm and a blind crew. And they were just like, (laughs) bit devastated, (laughs) totally shocked. And then the whole message went round the regatta that we weren't racing on behalf of blind sailing. We were blind sailing and I was a blind helm. And there's some fantastic photographs of us going round with all of these boats just round the mark. And, you know, it was literally our, just our second leg with the kite that sort of um, no practice with it, really, that sort of, you know, uh, did a bit of dis- disservice sometimes in some of the racing. But the sense and feeling of achieving at that regatta is, is amazing. And uh, also our crew at the time, it was a different crew to the welds, Eddie, he's deafblind and, and just... Uh, the. Ben, as a a tactician, Ben's uh, 22, and Gary, the trust they have in us to be able to do our jobs is is amazing at that level. Um, And I think Ben said the other day, it's expanded him and his confidence as a young person being involved with the organisation. And when he gets on board... um, to do one of the jobs he loves, own boat drivers um, with sighted people. It means he's got calmness in his voice. He always looks out at the wider picture, not just in at the boat, talking to the, to the owner of the boat, driving it. And, um, you know, it's really at a young age, given him so many skills that he wouldn't have had if he hadn't got, become a volunteer of the charity.
0: And speaking of your charity, can you just kind of explain what inspired you to start that up and kind of what you do with that specifically?
1: Yeah, so it was already there as a charity when I when I was young, but not not doing as, as much or as active. They, you know, they were doing what they can, and I just expanded it. So blind sailing um, in in the UK is uh, we run events all over all over the UK. So I organise the weekends, I organise the coaches, I, I sort of organise the development plans, um, how we how we as a team how. Once the teams are selected, the coaches do the selection because until I'm not up for selection, uh, it'd be unfair if I was involved with it. Um, but once we've been they've selected a really good team, I sort of like put in all the bits and pieces in place to, to get the team there. Fundraising to keep the charity going, getting new sailors on board. And it's been so interesting. I've turned the charity completely online since COVID, so... Hmm. I've just done uh, a course on try sailing to get new people involved, and we've got a fantastic bunch of people that have done three weeks and are now linking into more of our wider sessions with the group. And for our members, we have I call it a pub Wednesday, but I'm not allowed to put that on social media. But a laugh and a bit of fun on a Wednesday night with different themes, and then every Sunday night we have a we have a guest, be it someone that's a, an influencer. And inspires, or be a coach that gives us that coaching that we're missing at the moment, where we're not meeting up for sailing. So um, yeah, we're totally online now um, <laughs> for for a few months and, until we can get back uh, together. Um, And with the sadness of, like, all the events being cancelled this year, I still have high hopes that I'm going to organise a nationals at the end of the year. But I keep being told just to to hold fire on all my thoughts and just concentrate on the now and what we can do with the organisation. But around the world, there's um, uh, above Blind Sailing in the UK, we're obviously under the governing body of of the RWA and Sailability as well. We get great support from them but there's also Blind Sailing International that's run by uh, BJ Belenco, uh, in USA and he sits as the chair of that and we have European representative, so I'm the European representative of that organisation as well as GBR Blind Sailing to get more people involved um, all around the world so we've got representatives of uh, Blind Sailing International all around the world trying to draw it together, provide more opportunities and, and more racing and sailing so uh, Hopefully, it's going to get uh, bigger and bigger. Just a slight glitch with at the moment, so that 2021 is going to be a whole new year where I think everyone's going to want to get outdoors and get active. I think.
0: Exactly, no question. And if if someone hearing this is interested in getting into blind sailing, let's say no matter where they are, whether they're here in the US, or, you know, or in the UK, or perhaps even you know australia or asia or yeah, do you have yeah. any advice on kind of a first step for someone to take
1: contact us here at gbr blind sailing so we're blind sailing uk or facebook drop us a message or for our website www.gbrblindsailing.co.uk uh, or email us blind.sailing at yahoo.co.uk and we can put you in touch with um a blind sailing international uh, who also have a website. Or with your host country so there's we've got friends all over the world uh in blind sailing so um i can probably find a find a person in a location uh, for you to for you to meet with um yeah I, I love still We've on our calls um during the week i suppose other organization um, weren't able to do what i did in the uk so i have um I have Canada join our calls I have America join our calls so our friends from around the world that we race against with a, at world championships um I openly invite them to come to our sessions and uh, so they can get the most out of it in the strange times because uh, I do appreciate how lucky we are to be to be able to be online with so, with so many special guests as we've had um so uh, yeah so even our sessions are very uh, very worldwide at the moment. So, uh, yeah, just, just get in touch. Um, find us on Facebook, drop us a message, and I'll certainly link you up. And I don't think you'll look back. Um, well, I hope you wouldn't. I, don't, I can honestly say in sailing, the same for everyone. You don't have to be a racer like me. I still love cruising, and there's blind, blind cruising associations um just having that trip and um, going from a to b and they're really well organized uh, you know so there's this something for everybody in it or even in blind sailing that i run you don't have to be a racer you can come and learn and be part of our group and, and enjoy the camaraderie and making new friends so uh, yeah definitely something for everybody
0: All right. So uh, once again, Lucy Hodges, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on Ice Free Sports. And uh, it was really fun learning about blind sailing. I hope everyone out there learned a little something. And uh, once again, thanks so much for joining us, Lucy.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: To hear more episodes of the Eyes Free Sports podcast, visit eyesfreesports.com. Follow the podcast on social media at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports.